one hand, they're incredibly religiously devout. They're not skipping their meetings. They're incredibly religious. They are having these feasts and these solemn offerings. They're sacrificing their animals. They're going through. They're doing all of these things. But at the same point, as a people, they're, incred- they're just morally bankrupt. Right? If you know your Old Testament, if you've gone through these books, you can see it. We see it through the histories. I mean, Solomon is a great example of this. You know, someone who builds the temple, institutes many of these practices, but in his own heart, by the end of his life, right, he's worshiping other gods, offering child sacrifice in a foreign god at the very end. You know, just this outwardly <laughs> looks the part inwardly so far from it. They've replaced the law with religion, right? They're doing everything that is right, but that's it. And you also have within Amos, and even in this passage here, and and George has been doing a great job showing this as well, there's an excess. Everything is extraordinary. Everything is extra great. The feasts are extra solemn. There's more wine than there should be. There's more food than needed. There's this extra element to everything where the rich and the religious are almost just going above and beyond what is required of them. While there are so many within their society, within their culture, who have so little, but the religious are enjoying the bounty, enjoying their, their worship is filled with this. While there are so many, they've replaced that command to love your neighbor, they've replaced it instead with loving themselves and loving their friends and loving their community. And then you have this just hypocrisy, this outright hypocrisy of, of Israel, where they're neglecting the poor, but rather holding these lavish religious ceremonies. And there's just a hollowness, a hollowness to it that the people can see and God sees and decries in them. Take these gods that you have taken for yourself, that you've made for yourself, take them with you, and I'll send you off into judgment. I mean, the picture of the church in Israel is a really, or not the church in Israel, but of the nation of Israel is really startling and striking, but it's also not far off from really the picture of the church in America today as well. You know, when you really look at some of these things and this picture of the church, this is the perspective of many hold towards Protestant Christianity here in America. Um, George posted this a while ago, but that article by Tim Keller in the New Yorker about the word evangelical, right, and just what that means now in culture today. I mean, it really means this. It's really the same picture of the hypocrisy of Israel, where the word evangelical, and boy, if you know anything about history and church history, and I can get a little overly into that stuff, I mean, I love the word evangelical. Right? That, was, that word is so powerful and has been used by the church for hundreds of years. If you were an evangelical in Europe, in England, in America, you were on the front lines of justice. You were preaching good news to the captive and to the poor. You know, the abolitionist movement in America and in England, evangelical. You know, these, these movements to, to alleviate suffering, these are, this is evangelicalism, because evangelical is good news. You just want to go around and give good news to people. You want people to know the good news of who Jesus Christ is and free them from their bondage. That, that was the historical use of the word evangelical. But now we're to the point, right, and this is what kind of Tim argues in this article, is that the word evangelical 
now just is synonymous with hypocrite. That's just how the world looks at that term. If you're an evangelical, you're a hypocrite. You say one thing, but you do another. You say this, but your actions don't reflect it. And for many, this image of the church today, of evangelical Christianity today, just brings to mind images of megachurches, celebrity pastors, rich Christian congregations, right, that just are lavish in their production values, in their religious ceremonies, and who claim to care about human life, but then don't. Right? I was talking with someone this week who kind of gave this statement. I thought it was pretty accurate, saying it seems like evangelical Christians really care about human life until the person's born. Right? And then they don't care about people anymore. And there's a truth to that. Right? We really are pro-life until you're born, and then you're on your own, and good luck. And that, that's the pr- perspective of much of the world towards the church today. These lavish religious ceremonies, these huge churches. You know, you think about the Twin Cities, we're, you know, we're surrounded, ringed by mega churches. And even in the cities, we have big churches, right, right next to poor communities, right amongst, and you're like, what? what's going on? Who are these people, these hypocrites who gather together and praise their God, but don't take care of the poor and the vulnerable? Well, right, we have to ask the questions, how did Israel get to where they were? How did we get to where we are? Right? How are we in this position? How is Israel in that position? And, and in this passage, we see it, right? If it, you, you see it here, and you know it from just your Old Testament, but the pattern, the history of Israel, right? Israel is our pattern. Israel is the history, the pattern of humanity. And the pattern that Israel follows is the pattern that we follow, is the pattern that the church is following. I mean, this is just, this is it. And that's what God uses. He picks this one people in all of humanity to show who he is, but also who we are and our desperate need for him. And in the passage, it talked about, right, God says to the people, you believe lies. You have been following the lies that your fathers believed. You've been following these lies. You believed these lies, and it's led you to the state where you are. And to understand the lies that Israel believes, right, we have to understand God's calling because God's call to humanity the message of Scripture is beautiful. <laughs> We've gone through the Pentateuch and Genesis. And the message of the Bible, the message of God to humanity is a really beautiful, beautiful message where God speaks to man- humanity and just says, right, I made you. I love you. We were created to be in fellowship with God, to be in fellowship with each other, to rest in God's loving care for us. That was it. I made you, I love you, I'll care for you, I only have good for you. I just ask that you trust me. Just rest in me. We were made to trust God and to trust in his provisions and that what he has for us is good and that we will always have enough. Right? We were made for the opposite of selfishness. Right? The opposite of selfishness. George mentioned that early in this Amos series, right, of like, what would it take for us to be welcoming of immigrants or of other people? We would actually have to believe that we were secure, <laughs> that no one could take away anything from us, that I have my needs met. That's what God wanted for us. I am the Lord of the universe, and I love you, and I'll take care of you. Nothing will ever separate that. You can rest 
We were made for this. Our needs have been met. We were made to love God, to experience His love, and out of the surplus of that love and the blessings, right, we were to enjoy God and enjoy His blessings, enjoy the riches, enjoy our relationships, and out of that surplus, we would be generous and we would love others, and we would share that with others, and we would meet needs that there would be generous and thankful hearts. That's what we were created for. And you see all of humanity is desperate for this. Everybody wants this. Everybody knows this. They want to be able to be in fellowship with others. They want to be able to be generous, to be thankful. All of those things that we were just created for. But the problem is we believe lies. Right? Israel believed a lie, we believed a lie, and the lie, rather than trusting that God is in control and that God will take care of us, we believe ultimately that I'm in control and that I need to take care of myself. And if I don't take care of me, no one else is going to. I mean, I believe in God, and I believe that He's got good for me, but maybe not always good for me. And maybe, maybe the good he has for me, I've got to do something to earn or get. Or I, I, I hear the promises of God, and we hear the good promises, and Israel hears this promise, right? Like, I am with you. You are my possession. You're going to go into this world and be my chosen people. You will have a nation. You will be a blessing to the world. I will give you a king. I will give you everything I will give you, I give you the law even. I give you all of these great things. And it's easy to hear the promises of God. I know, I mean, I grew up evangelical Christian. I don't know if some of you guys did too. Probably you hear all these good promises from childhood. You hear the promises of God, but you, you filter it through your own selfish heart. And you say, okay, I want those things. I do. I want that peace. I want that fellowship. I want that salvation. I want this. Well, what do I have to do to get it? <laughs> right? What do I got to do to get it? And if I'm not experiencing it, well, what's wrong with me? What do I got to fix to get it? Or when we see the injustices of the world, we see something wrong, you say, well, I know what God wants, so let's fix it. Let's do this. I can do this. I have to, I have to do this. We need to do this. And really, the history of Israel... Right, is the history of evil, of evil, absolutely, but the history of Israel trying to achieve the promises of God on their own. God says, I'll give you a king, and the first thing they do is they pick a king. You know, say, all right, we got it, let's do this. I'm going to give you proper, a way to worship me. All right, great, let's do it. Let's build a temple and let's start, all right, let's go with it. I'm going to, you know, I want to do this. You know, and in the face of so much of God's promises and hopes, we believe that it's our job to do it. It's our job to secure God's promises. I have something to do. And if I don't do it, if I don't live up to it, God is displeased with me. God can't use me. And if I could just do this, then I would finally experience peace then I would finally experience that wholeness, that fellowship, that everything that I was made for. I need to do it. And so we try to achieve it. And this is religion. 
right? This is religion. Christopher Hitchens has this great book. Uh, if you know Christopher Hitchens, he died a few years back. He was an atheist. He wrote his book, The God Delusion. No, that's Dawkins wrote The God Delusion. His title is God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And he's got some good points. <laughs> religion does poison everything. And he's talking about how when you get religion added on to something, boy, it seems like fanaticism grows, people stop caring for others, there's this tribalism, all these types of issues. And it's exactly right. That is true. And Christianity, and we have to be so clear about this. Jesus was so clear about this. And it's clear throughout the Old Testament, through all Scripture, Christianity is not the same as religion. Following Jesus is not religion. The gospel is not religion. We're not one of these religions. There's a huge difference because what religion does, and this is what happens to Israel, right? How did Israel get into this position? How do we always get into these positions in culture and in society? Religion drives appearances over the sake of substance. If I have to achieve things, if I'm the one who's in control, if I'm the one who has to do stuff, well, if I'm not doing those things, it's just fear and guilt, and shame, and I got to keep working at it, and I, I know I should be there by now. I know I should have done these things, and so you do more and more and more, but instead of genuine joy and love, our motivations get twisted, and we really are doing them for ourselves. We do religious exercises. We end up having church services for us. We end up doing justice for us, we say it's for others, but it's really for us. We end up with everything being geared back towards ourselves. And you can be doing all the right actions and hear that voice from God, I despise them. Right? This is the fear. Right? This is the harsh word from the Lord. Israel is doing good actions. God says, I don't want them. I despise them. You hear Jesus give the same warnings to his disciples. You know, you're going to come to me and say, didn't I? I'll have nothing to do with you. This is what's so radically different about a Christian and everyone else in this world. Christianity compared to all other religions. Every other religion is about action. Every religion, you may have to repent, but you're repenting of your actions. You say, I've done bad. I need to repent of my bad, and I need to start doing good. Christianity says, right, no, I have to repent of my bad, absolutely, but I have to repent of my good that I've done for the wrong reasons as well, because the good that I do is not good either. I just have to repent. I need to be always repenting. I, I, nothing I do is good. It's not just about whether or not our actions have been wrong or our actions have been right but it has down to our fundamental, to our issues of our heart. Because what you see in Israel and you see in the church today right, is what we see in all of us. Right, if we, we know who we are and this religious heart that we all have. It's the default setting. Right? Tim Keller writes about that in a lot of places, but this idea of, right, of like, it's like a computer, how sometimes things just all of a sudden went back to default. And you get, well, what happened here? And you have to reset things. Because left to its own devices, my heart goes right back to religion. To the feelings of, I have, to, I have to do something. I have to be good enough 
and I can't do wrong. And if I do wrong, I got to repent and apologize and do good. And if I just do good, I will be accepted. If I just do enough good, I will finally get it, whatever it is. You know, if, if, I, if I'm just good enough, I will, I will achieve this. You know, my, my family life will be better. My neighborhood life will be better. At work, it'll be better. At church, it'll be better. I just, I've got to stop doing this, <laughs> and I got to start doing this, and then I will receive the blessing. That's our, that's the default setting in our heart. And if you're not doing good, okay, I've got to distance myself from any of that because my identity and my appearance is so important because it's who I am, right? This is, we see it within the church, but what's also striking is how we see that just in culture, right? You just can't avoid this religious response to things. It really is just the default that we all kind of run back to. We were talking this morning, even listening to NPR uh, earlier this morning, this week with the Me Too movement and all of these things. It's amazing how religious of a response culture has been giving to really, I mean, horrible things that have been done. But the guilt, the shame, the ostracizing, the distancing from, right, you are bad. These people are bad. And, and this morning, the, the, the talk on NPR was about, you know, could anyone be, rede- you know, can they be redeemed, a perpetrator of any of these around? What would it take for them to be redeemed? And the experts are saying, well, they will have to come grovel, right? They're going to have to be apologetic and sincere, and they're going to have to make amends and restitution. I mean, this is penance. And if they don't do that, they're unredeemable. Then we should shame them until they leave our society. It's kind of the, the hope, right? You shame people until they repent. Whoa, I mean, we've been down that road a lot. It, it, it's, this is our default settings because it's so important to us to be good, And it's so important to us to identify what sin is, to call it out, to call it out in others, but to hold on to, I have to be good. I've got to be good enough. And it's a trap. As in my attempts to do good, my attempts to do justice, my attempts to follow God's law, I end up breaking it. And I end up hurting others. And just falling into this cycle. And it just, what hope is there? Right, we just keep repeating this, where we see something that needs to be done. You say, this is wrong. We need to step in and right this wrong. And so we step in as humanity, and we write that wrong, and then we become the perpetrator <laughs> of the wrong we were trying to stop, and then we get called out, and then we, it, it's just this, whoa, how are we ever going to get out of, this, out of this cycle? What does the world actually need from us? What is it that we so desperately need in this fallen, broken world. In a world, right, where school shootings, like Deirdre said, have become common, in a, in a world in which there's such striking difference between the rich and the poor, when there's such religious hypocrisy, what, what does the world actually need? And what the world doesn't need, right, is religion. That's really clear. And Jesus says that very clearly. Amos says this very clearly. Religion is not the answer to injustice. More and more religious services is not the answer, is not what the world needs. Uh, George and I were at a, at a conference earlier this week down in Arkansas with some various church planters and people working in nonprofits and ministries and things, and the question there was raised too, the same question, you know, what does the world actually need from us? What is the need? In the face of so much hurt and pain, 
as we look at our city, I mean, Minneapolis, St. Paul, to the world, everything is great, right? We're Minnesota nice and super passive aggressive and <laughs> everyone's doing pretty good. How was your week? Pretty good. It's not, right? We know it's not. We, we know that there's so much hurting and so much pain and so much disconnect. What does the world actually need from us? Well, they don't need us to do church, right? Our, our world doesn't need us to do church really, really well. It doesn't need us to put together really professional, polished performances on Sunday, even though we are super professional and polished, <laughs> so we meet in a gymnasium. Or as house churches too, like the world doesn't need us to just do church. What the world desperately needs is not us at all, right? What the world needs is Jesus. What the world needs is the good news. It needs the gospel. It doesn't need us. It needs us to be the church, not to do church. Paul's last words to the church when he's leaving Ephesus going to Jerusalem, where he's going to be imprisoned and eventually killed. And he, he meets with the elders of the Ephesians church. And this is his church. This is the church he's been writing to. He's been, I mean, this is it. And this is his last words to that church. And it's, don't forget the poor. Like, there's, there's more than just preaching. Right? He's, it, it, Paul's just reminding the church, look, the church is more than just preaching. The church is more than just teaching. It's more than just gathering together and going through religious ceremonies and services and doing this over and over and over again because there's that trap of religion. It's almost impossible for Christians to continually gather together and not have it become religious. It's just what we're going to do because of the default setting of our heart. We're going to care more about appearance than substance, and we're going to hurt people. What the world desperately needs from us is what the gospel promises peace, right? In the Old Testament, the word is shalom. They need peace. It's what Christ died to secure. They don't need me to give eloquent sermons. They don't need us to give teachings. They don't need us to do service projects. The world needs peace. They need this whole fabric of peace, the, the fabric of peace to be kind of sewn back together. And because what happens is it's easy to look at the world and look at what's going on and, and really divide it up into all kinds of things. And the, the world needs social justice, you know. Or, no, 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 the problem in this world is the lack of morality and people's individual failings. That's what we need to do. And they say, no, no, what are you talking No, there's institutional, there's reform needed, there's big things that are needed. The reality is all of it's needed. All of it's needed. We, we need justice. We need peace. We need communities of healing. Right? We need these communities in which the peace of Christ rules. Where in the face of hurt and in the face of injustice, the saints right, have hope and have peace and are experiencing healing and are offering healing to others. Where there is a love of mercy where there is an enjoying of people's gifts, an enjoying of the gifts of God, like George has been really pushing us towards, right? Like the as aspect of God has given you money. God has given you blessings. Stop fighting it. Stop hiding from it. And right, that religious heart, right, of like, I don't want, 
my money. I'm embarrassed about how much money I make. I don't, you know, I, I can't really enjoy my life too much because I need to be doing something for the poor. No, we were created to enjoy God and enjoy his blessings. We need to be communities that revel in God's love and his blessings and enjoy what he's given us and be generous with it. Right, but there has to be that enjoyment. There has to be that genuine love. We need communities that do this. But how can we become communities of hope, communities of peace, communities of justice? Right, these outposts in a world of such hurting and heartache. How can we do this? How can we let justice roll down, like Amos is saying, but without it becoming just religion again? Right, how do we do this? And the great news about Christianity, right, is it's the only world religion that has a self-correcting mechanism, right? All of the religions really rely upon teachings. You follow the teachings, you just need to follow the teaching. But in Christianity, the very center of our belief is a person, right? We follow a person. We follow Jesus Christ, not just his teaching, but him as a person. And him as a person brings us back. So you always see that within Christianity. Yes, there's always that cycle of religiousness and hurt, and there's always reform, and there's always a return to the true heart of the gospel. So how do we do this? How do we return and stay centered on the gospel and on Jesus Christ? And I think a good place to to look for that, and for many of us, it's kind of cliched, and you know, our house church has been going through the book Generous Justice, and Tim Keller writes in there, has an article just on the story of the Good Samaritan. And that's that's a powerful illustration that Jesus gives us of this, of justice, of Amos. I mean, this is it. What does it look like to do justice, right? He gives us a picture of that when you look at the story of the Good Samaritan. If you're not familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, it's, there's a Jew who is passing along the road on his way to Jericho. This, he's, just, it, he's going through a very dangerous part of town kind of situation. He's traveling, and he is beset upon by robbers. He's mugged. He's beaten. He's robbed. He's left for dead on the side of the road, right? And he gets passed by, right? He gets passed by, by the people you would expect to have stopped to help him, right? A priest, a Levite, religious leaders, the people, right? These hypocrites that we just saw in Amos, right? Don't stop. Won't help him. But rather, the Samaritan stops and boy, when you look at what he does for him, you know, he risks his own life by stopping on the side of this dangerous road where there's robbers and <laughs> thieves. Uh, he gives of his time and of his money. He brings him to the end. He pays for his treatment. He is involved in the healing and the restoration. I mean, he, this guy, it is just, you just, whoa. And the standard that Jesus is giving, right? Because if you remember this, it all starts with this lawyer asking the question, right? You know, who's my neighbor? Really hoping to get affirm that what he's doing is good. And Jesus just blows him out of the water, right, saying, here's the standard. Good luck. Right? No one's going to live up to that standard where you're going to have to, I mean, to do justice, you are going to have to give of your life. This is not just your money. This is going to be your time. This is going to be your energy. This is going to be your resources. This is going to be stopping and helping the people who you have no business with, that you don't even enjoy or like, or people who are against you or hurt you. I mean, it's, 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 it's impossible. It's an impossible standard. But it's the picture of what doing justice is. But, but the brilliant part of that story 
And it, it, it is, the, the picture is, is profound. But what we tend to do as religious readers, and I've done this my whole life with that story too, is you read that and you say, all right, I get it, Jesus. I'm going to do everything in my power to not pass by that person on the side of the road. I get it. I'm going to, I won't be that. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? I won't be that Levite. I won't be, I'm going to be a different religious person. I will always stop when I pass that person. I, but I don't. Right? And then the guilt, I remember feeling college, first time going into the city in Chicago and the homeless people on the side of the street. That was my first time really encountering homeless people, you know, at all. I grew up in a rural area, you know, you go into the big city and there's homeless, and you just, I just remember being just, right, moral, I have no idea what to do. Do I need to go with them to a shelter? What, what, what should I do here? How, what should I do? I, I don't know what to do. I don't want to be this Levite. I want to help, but you don't, and you feel hopeless and powerless. And you don't know what to do. And the problem is we read the story and we put ourselves in the position of power. We put ourselves in the position of the person who needs to help, the position of the person who can help. But that's not the way that Jesus tells the story. It's a Jew on the side of the road who is hurting and helpless and bloodied. It's not a Samaritan on the side of the road. If you wanted the reader, if you wanted the, this lawyer to think of himself passing by and would you stop to help, Right? He would have said, right? There was a Samaritan buddy on the side of the road. You know, who would be the good neighbor? Who in the story would have stopped? But he didn't. He forced the reader to put themselves as the person bloodied and bruised and left for dead on the side of the road without any hope. And that's intentional. It's very intentional because only when we see ourselves properly will we be able to give love. Only when we see ourselves, right, only when we see ourselves left for dead with no hope in this world, only when we see ourselves been, have, having been saved graciously by someone who owes me the opposite of grace, because that's Jesus Christ. Only when I actually put myself in that position and receive that kind of grace, that kind of undeserved mercy, I am not the Savior of this world. <laughs> I never have been. I never will be. In fact, I need saving desperately. I look like my life is all together, but it's not. Right? I have no legs to stand on. I have no good of my own. I cannot, I cannot redeem my life, my family, myself, anyone. I am hopeless. And when you put yourself in that position, right, your heart is moved. Your heart is melted. And you're able to receive love and mercy. Because that's what's so hard about a religious mindset. It's impossible to receive help. It's impossible to receive mercy. If you are the savior of the world and the savior of yourself, you can't receive any help from anyone else. And you... You love the blessings of God, but you don't actually want God. Like, he's actually an obstacle in your life to what you actually want, which is heaven, which is peace, which is all those things. But if I'm the one who needs to do it, then I'm actually getting in his way. I'm sitting on his throne. Many of you are tired of sitting on his throne, right? It is exhausting. 
it produces guilt and anxiety and fear. I've got to hold everything together. I've got to keep this going. I've got to do more. I've got to be more. Uh, it, that is not the place we were supposed to be. And it's not what the world needs from us. But they don't need us to be Jesus. They need Jesus to be Jesus. And they need us to have hope. They need us to be at peace. They need us to be experiencing that hope and that peace. So I think the word for us today, right, is this picture of what do we need and what does the world need from us. And, and many of us struggle with this. I mean, do you struggle, right, if you're, if you're honest with yourself? You know, what is the fruit in your life when it comes to topics of justice, topics of church? I mean, are you, when you hear these things, right, it's easy on the one hand to get overly excited and be like, yeah, let's start on, all right, I can't wait to see what ministries we're going to start and what we're going to do and let's get... Finally, this, this white, comfortable church is going to start doing justice. Let's do this. You know, or are you really skeptical when you hear start people talking about justice? And, oh man, are we going to become one of those liberal, progressive, you know, churches that's going to do social justice all the time but not take sin seriously? Well, where are you in this whole kind of narrative and in this story? Look to Christ. Be reminded of who he is. Be reminded of what he has done and put yourself rightly. You know, the New Testament constantly reminds us of this. Paul constantly reminds the church of this in the letters. Think of yourself properly. Remember who you once were and remember who you now are. (laughs) Because if we don't do that, we're just going to do religion again. And we're just going to end up hurting each other and ourselves more and more. And many of you know this and, and have struggled with this. And it's hard to not just put up appearances and everything's fine, I'm doing fine, I can do this, white knuckle in it through sin and through life and through the church, and I can do it. That's not the peace and the hope that Christ has called us to. He's called us to experience him, to be loved by him, and to experience that hope and that mercy. And as we experience those blessings, we will bless others. So let Christ melt and reform your heart. And if this is hard, this is not an easy thing to do. It doesn't just come automatically, right? And I think that's part of the hardship too. I think that was, you always kind of think, well, I've prayed the prayer. I believe in Jesus. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. <laughs> I, 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 no, it, it takes intentions. It takes effort. It takes prayer. It takes meditating on scripture. It takes renewing your mind. You say, and renew your mind on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remind yourself of the gospel. That's that self-correcting mechanism. When you see Jesus bloodied and dying for you. It, right? I, I, I can't stay proud and arrogant in the face of my dying Savior. I just can't. Which is why we try to quickly move away from that image where we don't want to rest there too long because it makes us uncomfortable. But we have to see Christ. We have to see the cost of our salvation and what it costs to bring us home and the mercy that we received who are we that Christ would do this for me? His enemy, who deserved wrath and punishment, he gave me mercy and life. Who am I now to look at anyone in this world and not give them the same mercy and love and compassion that I have received? Right? It's the way in which we will be able to let justice roll. Right? The way in which we will be able to be these communities of healing.